Hey, we're in John 15. Turn your Bibles there. And we're continuing this study on uh, conversations with Jesus. Last week, I shared with you something again. Um, when I read my electronic Bible, I don't really like it. I can't see enough. Uh, you know, you see a few passages in there. And when I was doing some research a couple weeks ago, I realized in John 14, 15, 16, and 17, there's a recurring phrase. I've said these things to you, that. And it looks like that Jesus is structuring his last night of ministry with some very specific instructions. It's not just stream of consciousness. He's um, um, uh, telling him these things. And then at the end of it saying, now I've said these things so that you'll keep from stumbling. Or I've said these things so that you'll know uh, how to love one another. And so in that kind of framework, I saw that when I was looking at my Bible. This one, not the electronic one. Anybody with me? You know, I love having them available. No, I have a loving them available, uh, but I don't see as much uh, when I'm working in them. So last week I introduced this idea that the topic is instructions to avoid stumbling. And really, <clears throat> that seems to me to be from 1512 at least to 1527. That these instructions, these words are given for a specific reason to keep us from stumbling. Now, that raises a question, if you will, uh, in my mind and maybe in yours. What does it mean to stumble? Last week I shared, and I won't do any long on this, but the word scandalizomai is the idea of a stumbling block. Sometimes it's translated offense. Sometimes it's translated stumbling block. Um, sometimes it's uh, translated sin. Now, the first thing here <clears throat> is the key or to keep from stumbling by recalling Jesus' invitation or initiation, I'm sorry. <clears throat> keep from stumbling. Um, I want to begin, though, by saying that one of the things that seems to me that Jesus is trying to do is to keep people from stumbling or be offended. That word is used as well for scandalizomai. It can mean fall down, have something in your path, or to be offended. So you say, you know, I'm saying this to you so that you won't be offended. Is that possible that people would be offended at Jesus? Is it possible that, that a person could, could follow, be follower of these disciples and they could be offended? I think so. They could, from the standpoint of this, here's what I want you to get and we'll work our way forward. It seems to me that one of the things, if you'll notice here, Jesus is saying, look, this is my command that you love one another. You, you better not miss this. You better not miss that I'm your friend. You're not a slave anymore. We talked about that last week. You're not a slave, you're a friend. If you don't get this, you could be offended at me. We're going to talk today about his initiating. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And then we're going to move someday to the last section where he says this. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. They hated me first. Now, let me just walk us through that for a second, that all of those topics seem to be functioning so that Jesus can say, 
I've said this to you so you won't stumble. You won't be offended at me. When, when things are tough, right? You know, one of my favorite passages, if you'll just hold your hand there, about this idea of stumbling, is found in Matthew 11. If you've been around me, you've heard me talk about it occasionally. But I just want you to take a look here because the same word that Jesus uses <clears throat> here in John, stumbling, is the same word used in Matthew 11. Same exact word. Let me set it up for you. Jesus is starting his ministry. John the Baptist has been thrown into jail because of what he's done and said. Now John seems to have had a pretty clear notion about what Jesus was going to do. Remember when he preached? He said, there's one coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Remember that? What does that sound like? Jesus is going to come and he's going to bring the Holy Spirit to some and he's going to bring the winnowing fork and the axe to others. What does that sound like? My dad would say, cleaning house. <laughs> he's going to clean house, right? Saying, look, he's, he's got his winnowing fork in his hand. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. He, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. He's going to cut it down. That doesn't happen yet. John doesn't see Jesus taking names and cleaning house. He sees him healing. So look at this. When John heard, verse 2, while imprisoned, the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples. Are you the expected one? Or should we look for somebody else? Now think about that. This is John the Baptist who said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. The one who sent me said, there's somebody coming greater than me whose sandals I'm not worth tying and he will come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will then put, bring his winnowing for. How certain was John when he was doing that? Pretty certain? He'd been a prophet. You know, also John had been filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. Or as we know, nobody else has had that happen. <laughs> right? How certain was John? Very. What's happened? Not what he expected. He uses a very interesting messianic title. Are you the expected one? Or should we look for someone else? In other words, Jesus, you're not acting the way we expected. So there must be somebody else, right? You ever had this conversation with Jesus? <laughs> I mean, I've said to him, hey, you know, if I were you, <laughs> just a thought. You know, you could make a lot of friends if you'd fix this. You know, if I were you, just, you know, give me a little counselor. Why, I'm thinking, why would I not expect him to do that? Notice what Jesus says. Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, 
the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who does not stumble at me. It's the word right there. Same word in John. Some uh, numerics translates it offense. It's scandalon. Blessed is the person who doesn't stumble over me because I'm not acting the way you what? Expected. Anybody been there but me? These are real words here. That in Christian living sometimes, if we'd be honest, we would say, I need these words, Jesus, so I don't stumble. Because sometimes you don't act the way I tell you to. <laughs> right? I can't even get my dog to do that. <laughs> Told Buddy the other day, come here, and he just looked at me like, you have any bacon? <laughs> so what I'm, I'm trying to build this case here, and I hope that I don't want to take that long, but we're going. It seems to me that Jesus is trying to expose or delineate maybe some expectations that we have that if we don't get clear, could cause us to stumble. Again, last week we said a couple of things. I think that if you live your life as a follower of Jesus, as a slave, instead of a friend, you'll get tired of it. It'll cause you to stumble. If you don't understand where Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another. If you think that living for Jesus is just getting information and fighting with people who are doing wrong, you're going to stumble. If love isn't the result, the characteristic of our living, we're going to stumble. And today, there's a couple things here. I'm looking at, if, if we don't, in my opinion, now I've been sick and on antibiotics and I've had a lot of time to reflect theologically. So this could get wild today. Okay, just hold on, hold on. <clears throat> but it is my judgment that one of the things that I've noticed in Christian living is that often the difficulty we have if we stumble is bringing our expectations in line with reality. Right? I mean, we've been told all kinds of things about the Christian life that aren't true. I mean, I could just sit here and start rattling them. There's, there's a new book called Half-Truths. It's by a guy I don't believe everything he says, Adam Hamilton. But there are a lot of half-truths that Christians have been told that just aren't true. I told you, I think last week, this whole thing of expectations when Becky got cancer. What was amazing to me was that when she was diagnosed, she never said, why did this happen to me? That assumes that if you're a Christian, What? Nothing bad's going to happen to you. Your kids are all going to be born straight teeth. You know, University of Texas will always win. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> when, when she was, when she got cancer, she said, why not? And listen, as a theologian, I stepped back from that and said, I am in the presence of a godly person here. Why not? Is there any promise? Expectation? You know, we used to sing an old song, it's not on flowery beds of ease that we travel. My dad used to always say, an old image of the Christian life was the old ship of Zion. Any of old timers remember that? Remember that one? He always used to say this, there are no tourists on the ship of Zion. 
No tourists. So expectations. This is what keeps us from stumbling. Getting our expectations aligned, guided by what God is. God has said. So Jesus says this. Hey, blessed are those who do not stumble over me. Blessed are those. So Jesus in 15 says, look, I'm telling you this. So do you want, does that make sense? Am I talking about reality or do we, do we struggle with this? When God doesn't seem to operate or act or do the things we tell him to do. Or, you know, that we say, you should do this right now. So I want to look at this a bit. Um, keep from stumbling. I've got a couple things, a definition, an admission, and some history. I told you I had a lot of time to sleep this week. Notice what Jesus says in John 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. Uh, Jesus, I want to give a definition here. He says this, I chose you. Now the Greek word chose means to appoint or set in place. The notion of choosing here when he's saying, this is my initiative. This is my initiative. You, didn't, you weren't looking for me. I was looking for you. There, there's a lot of biblical truth here that I want to try to unpack. But the notion of choosing, who is the chosen? Who are the elect? See, here we go. I told you I've been taking a lot of time this week. Who are the chosen who are the elect, who are those who Jesus says we can have confidence and not stumble, you're one of mine. Now, this whole idea about understanding what does Jesus mean here. Um, as I was working on this, I thought, you know, some people are going to think this is just too academic. And too, but, but I want to tell you, I think that this has some real implications for us to have confidence and for us to have faith that we're with Jesus, and we're walking with him, and our lives are mattering. So I'm going to try to take a run at this. And if not, you can blame it on the antibiotic. <laughs> now, Jesus' words here are absolutely true. But my admission is this. My interpretation is not always accurate. I'm not going to assume that I have figured this all out in the last 1,500 years of biblical studies. Just listen now, and Cliff will tell you, okay? I believe all of us are struggling to understand what does it mean when Jesus said, I chose you, you didn't choose me. Speaking now to these disciples, is this the same idea throughout the scripture? My interpretation and my understanding is an attempt to say, this is what I think the scripture is trying to say. It doesn't mean that I'm saying I got it all figured out. It does mean I'm gonna offer you an understanding of this that for me and for many that I know, has helped them to not stumble over the question that some people ask, am I chosen? Let me tell you the upshot of this. Do you remember a song a long time ago named There is a Fountain Filled with Blood Drawn from Emmanuel's Veins And sinners plunge beneath that flood Lose all their guilty stains William Cowper wrote that song. A great English Puritan. 
and William Cowper struggling. Now think about that song. You're struggling with this notion as to whether or not he is chosen or not. His, by the way, his pastor was John Newton. You know, the guy, the great slave trader that wrote Amazing Grace. John Newton was his pastor and spent lots of time with him. Cowper, because he was not convinced that he was chosen. Sometimes he didn't feel close to God. Of course, that never happens to a real Christian, right? I've often said to you, you know, think about it, how warped our views are. Whenever you're in trouble, you wonder where is God? When you ever sin, do you ever wonder where he is? <laughs> right here. <laughs> right beside me. Don't look. Cowper struggled with this so profoundly, he tried to kill himself three different times. It's reported that at close to his death, George Whitfield, who was another contemporary of him, was a great preacher, yelled at him on his deathbed and said, you are an elect. It drove him crazy in his life. Now, maybe you say, well, I've never wondered about that or never thought about that. There are people who do. So we're going to look at this in some way. The third, the third thing, uh, a, a little bit of history, <clears throat> some history on this. It's, it's fairly, I think it's obvious or true that the, the teaching about chosenness or election did not occur for the first 400 years of the church. No, nobody discussed it. The idea of who's the chosen and who's not the chosen. Was, it's not a subject of discussion. Can't find it in the ecumenical councils. Nicaea, Constantinople, uh, Ephesus. You can't find it. It's not discussed. It begins to be discussed in the 4th century. What does it mean to be chosen? The elect is sometimes, you heard that word? The elect. That is because at that particular time in the church, there, was a, there, were, there were two huge um, threats. Let me tell you real quick. One was the Manichaeans. You know, spell that for you. It's M-A-N-I-C-H-A-E-I-N-S. I-A-N. Manichaeans. The Manichaeans taught that God was in complete and sovereign control of the universe. That everything that happened was determined by God. Every individual act, every rape, every car, not car wreck, chariot wreck, <laughs> chariot wreck, you know, <clears throat> all God. And then Pelagius, P-E-L-A-G-I-U-S, comes into the picture who is trying to correct some of the abuses of the Christian understanding of grace that you can live and do whatever you want to do. He then comes in and said, no, people have a measure of freedom and free will. Then comes on the scene is a guy named Augustine, the great North African bishop, who his first book is interesting, is on free will. Most people don't know that. Augustine, who is one of the great proponents of specific election, his first book was on free will. But his interaction with the Manichaeans and the Pelagians, this is per cliff, okay? Per cliff. His interaction with them 
was so profound and Manichaeisms began to threaten the church, it drove Augustine to a hyper position on God's control in the universe. How do you match power? With power. Augustine says everything that happens is because of God. The Westminster Catechism, what are the decrees of God? Everything that happens in the universe, God has decreed it. Everything. Question seven, Westminster Catechism. If you can go read it. Everything that happens, every illness, every problem, every disease. This is out of Augustine's conflict with them. What is he doing? He's matching power with power. And in some ways, it was good in that Manichaeism drains out. In the same way, let me say it again, and I'm going to try to move this forward. History. John Calvin, somebody I love, have big disagreements with. John Calvin in the 15th century, or the 16th century, is dealing with a sovereign, all-controlling church. What's the name of that one? There's one church. The Roman Catholic Church. They tell people during this Reformation period, you get involved with these German yahoos who are trying to say that you're made right with God by faith, we're going to throw you out of the church. What will that mean? They're excommunicated. They're what? They're going to Texas, right? No. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. I was trying to re correct that. You're going to hell. So who owned, who owned salvation? Church. And you have millions of peasants. And so John Calvin rightly located salvation where? In God. In the sovereignty of God. Thank God for John Calvin. The issues there seem to me to be contributing to this understanding of God's election and choosing sovereignly over and above any other action or influence. Now, let's look here. A distinction in interpretation. <clears throat> this idea of being chosen. I hope this isn't numbing your brain too bad. But I think it's important because this is per cliff. Both Wesley, these are the main guys, Wesley and Calvin, that have, have cut the path for the church for the last over 500 years. Both believed that human beings were totally depraved. Get that straight now. Both of them, Calvin, Wesley, believed that human beings were totally... Romans 3.10, there's none that seeks after God, right? None, none, go read Romans 3 sometimes, Romans 3, 1 to 20. No one seeks after God. They both believed that both are all sinners were depraved and bound to sin and unable to save themselves. The big question is this. Here's the big question now. <clears throat> uh, and, and I apologize if, if uh, it sounds unkind, but here's the way I formulated it. The big question here between Calvin, Wesley, and others, they both agree everybody's depraved, everybody's sinners lost. The big question 
is whether God chooses everyone or does God love everyone? Say it another way. In the work of Augustine and Calvin, I think it's fair to say that God does not appear to love everyone. Here it is in the Institutes. God passes over those he has predestined to perdition. He only chooses certain people called the elect. He passes over. He does not, this is my interpretation on this, because he passes over, he does not love everybody. That's my main contention here now about choosing. How do you know you can be chosen? Does God love everybody? That's easy. Oh yeah, sure. But I'm just telling you, there are a lot of serious theological reflections that would say no. Do you know that? He doesn't. I mean, according to that system. Uh, a person, one time I was in a debate over this, and they said, well, Cliff, you're one of those guys that believes in free will. You ever heard that? I'm not. I don't believe in free will. Not, I don't believe human beings are free. I think we're lost in sin. And this whole idea of initiating, Jesus has to do. I believe in this. I believe in free grace. I believe that grace is extended to everyone. I believe that God does in fact love the world. And so Arminius and Wesley and Calvin are struggling with this idea. Who are those who are chosen? Let me tell you what, and I'm not trying to do an advertisement here, but we've been working at the university at the Wesley Center for some time. That, that the idea is that God, that, that, that Wesleyans believe, and this is what our church is a tradition of, is that God's free grace is for everyone. And that God in love is reaching out to everyone. Now, here's why Wesley said he had trouble with the particular doctrine of election. That, you know, the specific one, that only certain people are elected. You're in, you're out, you're in, you know, before the foundation of the world. He said this, it strikes at two things. Maybe you want to write this down. It's just part of the, it strike, that, that idea strikes at two things. The character of God. It strikes at the character of God that God must not love everybody to pass over or to create people to send them to hell. That doesn't sound very loving. So the position there of being that it strikes at God's character. The second thing it does is it may, it may uh, debilitate faith. In other words, if you're not elect, it doesn't matter how much faith you have. It just doesn't matter. Uh, Calvin even said at one point that sometimes the reprobate or the damned have a sense of God's presence. He called it effervescent faith. If you can imagine that. Had it for a while, but not for good. 
So, so it strikes it. Well, so if I'm not the elect, then it doesn't matter if I try to express faith because if I'm not, I'm not, right? It's already settled. I know this is heavy stuff. Is this making sense? Is this rubbing up against some stuff here? These are the questions that people are asking to some degree in their own life, I think. Now, <clears throat> an explanation offered. If you agree, or like with Wesley and Arminius, if you agree that all human beings are lost, depraved, I, I like what Wesley said one time when he said, he believed that people were entirely sinful, but they may not be as sinful as they could be. <laughs> right? You ever, you ever met people like that? I mean, they're entirely sinful, but they could probably be, do more if they just worked at it. <laughs> Dallas Willard, they used to ask him, do you believe that people are totally depraved? I told you this a couple of weeks ago. He said they're sufficiently depraved. <laughs> Nobody's going to go to heaven because they just chose one day. It's going to require Jesus's initiation. That's what he said. I chose you. You didn't choose me. So how do we get around that? I've used this term before. You can see it on your notes, I think, or maybe somewhere. Wesley understood from the church fathers in the first four centuries, there's something called prevenient grace. Prevenient grace. It is grace that goes before. It is grace that goes before. And you read in the church fathers for the first four centuries. Here's how Randy, Matt, or one guy said like this. <clears throat> prevenient grace is this. God's operation in your heart and life so as to show you your need for Jesus. It's God's operation in your heart and life to show you your need for Jesus. Anybody had that happen? <laughs> That's called prevenient grace. I mean, I can remember when I was 17 years old in Beaumont, Texas, at a friend of mine's house, and we're trying to plan a surfing party to meet girls, right? We're at his house. Somehow we begin to talk about some things, and God begins to work in our heart and life to show us our need for Jesus. We called our pastor, went there and got saved on a Tuesday night. Prevenient grace is God's operation to show you your need and then give you the ability to respond. Prevenient grace <clears throat> is the grace that is God's operation to show you. Listen, if you have known you're a sinner, if you have known you needed Jesus, you ought to throw your hands in the air and praise God. I can line up people left and right that have no sense of their sin. It doesn't mean God hadn't worked on them. It doesn't mean God hadn't shown them. It means they have still the ability to resist. When I grew up in church, I always thought if God ever showed your sin, you ought to feel bad. You know what? You ought to feel good. <laughs> you ought to be rejoicing that God's prevenient and operating grace is showing your need, then giving you the ability to respond. Right? What would happen if you did, you know, this week, I finally went to the doctor twice. Talked my doctor out of a shot, though. I did. Absolutely did. You know what? When I woke up the other morning and couldn't talk, what if 
I didn't know that. I just went in and went to work. People go, something wrong with him. <laughs> right? What, what, if, what if I had not known that something's wrong with me? See, see, that's the most gracious thing God can do is to show you something's wrong and then say, now, respond. Prevenient grace. We used to sing a song. I think I put it on your outline there. Got it? Is it on there? Yeah. It was grace that what? Taught my heart to fear. And then what? That's my need. And then what? Grace my fears relieved. That's my response. Prevenient grace allows you to recognize your need. It's grace that taught my heart to fear. And then grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear? The hour I first believed. So I got a bunch of scriptures here. We're not going to get all through. <laughs> but here's my understanding of this huge idea. Who is chosen? Who? Who can have confidence <clears throat> that they're chosen? Who can lay their head down on the pillow and feel like when they're far away from God or they don't feel close? Who can say, according to the scriptures, I can have confidence that I am one of those that Jesus chose. Look on your list there. Those are just some of the whosoevers in the New Testament. You ever look at those? Whosoever will, let him come. Whosoever will follow me can be my disciple. I, I love this one in, uh, of course, you know I love Romans. But this one over here in Romans 10. For there is no distinction, verse 12, between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is the Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who is it? Whoever. Whoever. Listen. If you've struggled with this and thought about, well, you know, am I the elect? Am I? Listen, this will cut the root of faith instead of saying, you know what the scripture says? Whoever, whoever. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, it's not on here, I actually put it, is John 6, 37. All that the Father give to me will come to me. Now, someone interpret that and say, well, you see, you, 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 you know, you got to be given by the Father. Exactly. Salvation isn't something human beings cook up. The Father's got to be involved here, right? The question is, is the Father just concerned about some or all? It's a question we've got to answer. Does God love everybody or just some? Well, I read the New Testament is that God loves everybody. So that all that the Father give to me, what will happen? They will come to me. And whoever, no, say whoever, who, I love this verse, whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. Here it again. All that the Father give to me will come to me. If you come to Jesus, you're given to the Father. He says, and all who come to me, I will never cast them out. I know this here in Greek, in this passage. There are two ways to say Greek, uh, no in Greek. I love the first one. I love the first one. It's O-U. 
I'm not kidding. It's the Greek particle ooh. O U. Oh, I'd like to stay here for a minute. No. <clears throat> it means no in the indicative or the declarative mood. Whenever you're writing a sentence in a declarative mood, you use the word ooh. And the other word for no is me, M-E, long E, that is used in all other moods except the indicative, imperative, optative, the you know, imperative, optative, subjunctive. In this verse, both of those words are back to back. Meaning, there is no way, no way to write this verse for it to mean other than, I will not cast you out. Can't be written anyway. It is to affirm, to say, if you come to Jesus, He will not cast you out. But how does it happen? The Father is involved. The Father is drawing. The Father, through provenient grace, is awakening us to our need. R.A. Torrey, maybe some of y'all heard him. R.A. Torrey talked to a guy one time who, who came and had all these objections. And Torrey used this verse. <clears throat> and, 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 and this guy said, well, I'd like to come to Jesus, but I think I've sinned too much. Torrey said, well, it doesn't say all those who come to me except that they sin too much. I'll not cast them out. It says, all those who come to me, I will not cast them out. Well, I, I don't know that I really want to. I don't have enough feeling. Torrey said, it doesn't say all those who come to me and have enough feeling, I'll not cast them out. It says, all those who come to me, I will not cast them out. Well, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. Well, it doesn't say all those who come to me, unless they've committed the pardonable sin, I'll, I'll not cast them out. He just hammered away at that guy. Every objection he had, he said, whoever comes to me, I will not, I certainly will not cast them out. The guy got saved. It comes down to this. If you're the elect, if you're the chosen, you are because God so loved the world that he loved you. God doesn't love just a group or a, a few. He loves everyone. I, I can prove that to you. Look here at this verse. I don't know if I've got the whole thing on it. Second Peter. <clears throat> I just want to show you this. God loves everybody. When he said, I've chosen you, you didn't choose me. Man, I, he took the initiative to say, I came to you in love. Look at this. That, to me, this is the, the final deal on does God only love or, or, if you will, does God only provide for a certain group salvation? Some will say, if God provides it for everybody indiscriminately, I'll use that word, it doesn't bring glory to God if everybody doesn't respond. I would take issue with that thought. God's glory is not what he's only concerned about. God's concerned about his creation. And those you love. Now watch this in 2 Peter chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Watch this. Even denying the master who bought them. Who did Jesus buy? Who did Jesus pay for? 
the false prophets. See that there? Did he just die for the elect? Did he just pay for a certain group? Or did he pay for, notice what he said, denying the master who bought them, paid for their salvation. Acts 13, 44 to 49, you can look at that. Let me, let me try to pull this down a little bit. One of the things I'm trying to affirm or help here is for us to understand the character of God and to incite faith. You with me? That's where Wesley was concerned. Is God loving everyone character of God, and if he is, will that incite faith to believe they can be one of those whosoevers? To me, that matters, that people would know. Maybe, maybe, you, maybe you thought, well, who cares? <clears throat> but the notion of God's initiative, here's some other passages you can look at later. Look at Acts 17 real quick. This is Paul talking to a bunch of heathen or Gentiles, or as my mom would say in East Texas, heathern. <laughs> Notice here in verse 22, he starts. So Paul stood up, I observe you're very religious. God made the world and all the things in it. He's not made, uh, verse 25, human hands. He made of one man every nation. Watch, verse 26. And he made of one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having destined and determined their appointed times and boundaries, you know, where they live. Watch this. Why? Why did God do this? Look at verse 27. That they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him. And find him, though he is not far from each one of us. What is, does that sound like? Well, you know, there's just a certain number. Or that God has made a way for people to have this desire, this interest for him to know God. What I'm trying to say to us today, and some, I'm trying to pack about 1,500 years of study here, not from me, I mean, I'm not 1,500 years old, but <laughs> to say that you can settle the issue if you're chosen. When you choose. I think I put this on your outline. We talked about that. In Matthew 10, verse 22, Jesus said, he that endures to the end, the same will be what? Remember that? Saved. He that endures to the end, meaning stay in faith, trusting Jesus as your Savior, will endure the end. This is my assessment. Now, again, you don't have to agree with it. Calvin asserts to know it's the elect 
that will endure to the end. He asserts, I know that. It's the, the elect, they'll always endure to the end. Wesley asserts to encourage faith. It is those who endure to the end that are the elect. What's the difference? One assumes to know. The other assumes to encourage you to remain. They're saying the same thing. It's just a matter of saying, well, one system says the elect, well, they'll, they'll endure to the uh, Yeah. But Wesley said it's those who endure to the end will be the elect. Clearly understood here, we understand what Jesus means. He did choose you. You know why? You're one of those all and whosoevers. For God so loved the world that whoever would believe in Him. He chose you and me when He came to this earth and proclaimed the gospel. He chose you and me when we heard it. I'm often amazed. You know how faith comes, don't you? By your, by your own effort, right? By your own study and struggle, right? Faith comes by your own effort, right? Isn't that what the Bible says? Prevenient grace here. Faith comes from hearing. Romans 10, 17. And hearing the word of Christ. See, that's not me. That's Him. When I hear the gospel, it creates... I tell my students, preach the gospel. Quit trying to figure all these things out. Quit trying to get all these mysteries worked out. Preach the gospel. What will it create in people? Faith. When they hear it, it creates faith. So it comes to this, that we affirm the character of God. He loves everyone. We excite faith in this loving God who said, whosoever will let him come. And we give peace to the soul who doesn't think God is playing some kind of cosmic game with them and saying, you're in, you're out, you're, you know. Because folks, you can't know. If this has been done to you, you can't know. So both Calvin and Wesley agree it's God's initiation. Let me tell you a quick story. Uh, just to kind of show you the importance, I think. My dad, when I was 17, decided we were moving from Texas to Kentucky. Where I thought there were three million people and four last names. <laughs> we moved there. And I didn't know anybody. And I didn't want to go. And I made it pretty clear. You know, my dad said, you're going. After... About nine weeks, my dad came to me one day and said, do you want to go back to Texas? <laughs> he was ready to send me back. I was miserable. I, I was having a terrible time. <clears throat> I was in this high school. I had my senior ring from my former school. Can you imagine that? My dad moved me. That's what's wrong with me. But <laughs> I had a senior ring from my high school in Texas, and I'm in a school in Kentucky. And I'm not that malleable 
as you can tell, I've been here 25 years and still can't pull for OU yet. I'm still working on it. I was a Texan through and through. I wasn't going to let him forget it either. And I remember how miserable I was. One day, I was in a class. I, I had so many credits because Texas was a little further than the Kentucky school. Hope nobody's from Kentucky here. <laughs> Not trying to offend Kentucky. But we were a little further along. I needed one English credit to go to college. So I took art, PE, and a class called the 20, Problems of the 20th Century, where we talked, which I was good at. <laughs> <laughs> I sat in that class, miserable as could be, and one day, a young lady named Jo, J-O, she only girl, her dad wanted a boy, uh, <clears throat> Joe Gothrop and Missy Keffer saw me and looked around at me and knew I was new and invited me into their friendship. Now, I don't know these people from Adam, but they invited me into their friendship. They took the initiating step. Come to find out Joe was the head cheerleader for the school. I mean, I knew she was pretty, but I know that. <laughs> Missy was another great, if you will, leader in the, in the school. I, I'm serious. I, I, to this day, I, I got a hold of Joe the other day and I told her the story again and she just started crying. She told me. And, and I said, Joe, you don't have any idea what happened by that initiation. When you initiated with me, when, when I began to get in their realm of friends, my life changed. I had, listen, when I graduated, the, the, the principal of the school was talking to my dad, which made me nervous. <laughs> when he said this, Marvin, I've never seen a student come into a new school and make more friends in one year. You know why that was? Joe Gothard and Missy Keffer initiated and reached out to a lonely Texas kid and involved her and, enter, and brought me into their realm of friendship. I, I, I told you, again, talked to Joe the other day, and we're going to see her maybe, me and Becky will see her in, in September. When I think of that story, I think of this. Listen, Jesus invited you into this big family of friends, and he may have used one of his friends to get to you. He, he may have used one of his children to speak to you. He, he may have used one of his friends to guide you, to initiate. I'm not here to say that salvation or election or choosing is something we do in our own strength. Not at all. It is God's prevenient grace that reaches out to everyone because of his nature. All right, so I'm going to ask you to think about this week at least. Identify how Jesus has initiated a relationship with you. I know this is a big topic and I haven't covered it all and there are probably lots more questions. But I am concerned that people have the confidence to know that the character of God is love. And that to incite faith in that God to say, if I come to him, he will never cast me out. Through your days and struggles, through your illnesses and joys, it's my judgment that we won't stumble if we know 
character and the nature of God? That's the question that bubbles up. You can ask anybody in congregational care in this church. When cancer hits, when tragedy occurs, the question that comes up every time is about the character of God. What is he really like if he's allowing this? If you and I don't understand his character, know his nature, we not only have the problem we're facing, but we have the problem with what kind of God is this that would dare to say, I choose you, but not you. You're in, you're out. Through no effort of your own, through no failure of your own. To me, it's untenable. It comes back to understanding. I chose you. Why? Because I'm a God of love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, man, I've tried to understand this little phrase that has all kind of tentacles throughout the entire New Testament. And it has some impact on the way we view ourselves and view you. Help us to be people who know your character, your love, your commitment to us, and your initiation. That you initiated this relationship with us through prevenient grace. It was grace that taught us to fear. And grace, our fears relieved. So help us this week to live in the confidence and the security that you are this God of love. And that we can live a life of faith and trust in you, knowing you initiated this. Help us to live in that joy this week. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.